Hi, you're listening to Track Changes, the podcast of Postlight, a digital product studio at 101 Fifth Avenue in New York City. My name is Paul Ford, and I'm the co-founder of Postlight. And I'm Rich Ciotti, the other co-founder. I need to start this show more often. I'm tired of being a sidekick. It's, we've talked about this before. All right, you can start it in the next show. Of course. Great. Sure. Sure, I will. So, uh, Rich, tell the people what Postlight does. Postlight is a digital product studio based in New York City. We design and build all sorts of amazing technology product platforms, apps. It really just kind of runs the gamut. And we should also let people know we're growing. We are looking for product managers, people who can guide products from concept all the way to completion into the app store or platforms deployed to a big cloud. If you know what that is all about, get in touch. Hello at postlight.com. We're also looking for product designers, people who can uh, use tools like, um, you know, Sketch, Envision, things like that to conceive of and think through what an application experience is like for the user. And the user could be a business person. They could be an end user uh, in an app store or on the web. And uh, we're in New York City. So uh, we really prefer either of those roles to be on site. It's work for clients, and we'd love to hear from you. Hello at postlight.com. All right, Rich. This is a cool guest. This is a cool guest. This is, first of all, full disclosure, this is a client, someone who hired Postlight to, to do some work for his organization. But sometimes clients become friends. That's and, a good way to put it. And, and roommates. And roommates, exactly. <laughs> uh, so in our studio today, which is also just our office, we have Glenn Brown, the Chief Digital Officer of the Obama Presidential Foundation. Oh, I don't know if that's the right title. Oh, is it? The official name is the Barack H. Obama Foundation. Uh, there is a Obama Presidential Center, which is the uh, building that is in design in the works for the south side of Chicago. The foundation is the broader kind of organizational superstructure that includes the Obama Presidential Center and then all of the uh, charitable programming, uh, leadership training, uh, active citizenship programs uh, that the foundation will be pushing over the years. So, Glenn, what does the Obama Foundation do? So the Obama Foundation is a charitable organization, a 501c3 in the parlance of uh, U.S. Uh, regulatory language. It means it's a, it's a, it's a nonprofit, um, and the mission of the foundation is to uh, inspire and empower people, organizations, and communities to change their world. The inspire and empower part is, the, I think, the part to focus on in terms of what our mode will be. The real goal of everything the foundation is doing is to uh, encourage a culture of active citizenship uh, as opposed to kind of a lean-back version of citizenship. Um, the foundation wants to encourage a lean-in version of citizenship, a hands-on, control-your-own-destiny sort of uh, version of citizenship. And um, inspire is the sort of uh, emotional, inspirational, rhetorical side of that equation, and empower is the more utilitarian, pragmatic part of it. So uh, the foundation will be uh, inspiring people with stories of the Obama administration or how Mr. and Mrs. Obama got to where they got or uh, how different um, leaders before them uh, helped build the bridge for them to get to the White House or possibly inspire by uh, lifting up great citizen stories from around the world of people making changes in their own neighborhoods. But then also on the pragmatic side of things, the empower side of things, the foundation will be providing uh, training for future leaders, 
We'll be providing um, different kinds of online tools for people to learn how to organize uh, around the issues they care about uh, with a real local emphasis. So the foundations based in the south side of Chicago and the Obama Presidential Center will be built on the south side of Chicago. But the idea is for the foundation as a whole to offer people wherever they are in the world uh, ways to dig into the issues they care about at the local level. All right, so you are the chief digital officer. Right. All right, so what, what does that person do? Uh, well, chief digital officer is a title that varies across organizations, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Um, at the foundation, or the digital team, at the Obama Foundation, the digital team uh, thinks about and works on anything from uh, CRM and databases, um, contact databases, content databases, which we can talk more about our work with Postlight on, to, on the other end of the spectrum, communications, uh, press relations, et cetera, and in between product design, content production, content partnerships, quote-unquote marketing in a way. So part of what we're doing is to help people understand what is the Obama Presidential Center, why Mm -hmm. is it being built, what will it look like. Part of it is to help facilitate the leadership training programs, which we'll be rolling out, uh, to make sure that anyone in the world can have a way to at least – either do it themselves or or apply to some of the more uh, centralized programs. So I think this is a really interesting aspect of any big NGO, or I guess in this case, FGO for formerly governmental organization. But like you are both, you have to be kind of a media organization. You have to have a big list of people that you reach out to on a regular basis. And because that's your, that's how you survive from year to year. You know, people are going to give you money and they need to know about the work you're doing and you need to reach millions and millions of people every year in order to keep your mission going. At the same time, you've got these activists that you're going to train up. You've got um, a physical thing to build. You've got all the stuff that needs to happen. So do you find yourself balancing between those two worlds? Are they all just one big world where you're like, how does that work for you? Um, I think it I definitely see a balance between the two, but I think of it as one of the mental models we use for the foundation, at least on the digital team, is thinking of it as a little bit like um, a sports franchise or other, another kind of like training network. So mm-hmm. if you think about, say, the White Sox or the Cubs, I'm not going to take sides on that one. They're a, an international sports franchise with fans around the world, with a talent network that comes from around the world. They're very much rooted in Chicago. Uh, there's only one, what used to be Comiskey Park, there's only one Wrigley Field. And it is in Chicago, and there is a heavy physical local aspect to that. Um, but there is also the media presence of that um, franchise that could be national or international. And there's also the talent network that feeds into it. So players competing from all over the world to enter into that talent network to make it onto the, the starting nine. I could abuse the metaphor, but you get the idea of... Mm-hmm how we imagine our role as uh, interacting with that physical real estate side of the presidential center. So an enormous number of embroidered hats are in the future. (laughs) Uh, It's fair to say that we're living in strange days. And I don't want to get into strange days, but would the foundation ever step into sort of well, let's this is a great example, actually, the flood in Houston. Obviously, the foundation is young right now. But as a voice, um, obviously people wait desperately to hear what, a, you know, what the president's going to, even a tweet. I think he tweeted once during the hurricane. So is there anything in that charter, quote unquote charter, 
that speaks to current events and how the foundation is the foundation a vehicle for messaging or is that completely separate and the foundation has its own mission well sure it, it, there's a vehicle for it i would say we should take care to, to make clear that it's not a political right. um uh, sure. and it is a, a charitable one and that we're focused much less on traditional red blue electoral politics in fact we're not focused on that at all mm-hmm. as we are on the kind of preconditions of democracy of of active citizenship and of what people can do on their own uh outside of the government right. to improve their worlds so the example of the storm in houston the foundation i think you can see a glimpse of how we'll interact with the world and sometimes which is to lift up the good work that's already happening out there yeah so both the president in his personal capacity uh, in his response and the foundation in our uh, response, the role was to basically point out and make it easier for people to figure out where to pitch in or help, uh-huh. given the good work already underway by local charities. Got it. So there's sort of a routing curatorial function to what we do, and I think that'll always be part of part of the mission. Any precedent? Uh, previous administrations doing something like this? I, I, I'm not versed in this, but I think Jimmy Carter has something similar out there. Uh, I don't know. It's hard to compare. So there, yeah. the Carter Center is definitely an active presidential center. And um, we have taken notes, certainly, from uh, the different presidential foundations that are out there. I mm-hmm. think that the it's fair to say that um, the ambitions for the Obama Foundation are uh, unprecedented in terms of uh, the ability. We want to make it possible for literally anybody in the world to get involved at whatever level of involvement they want to get. Oh, interesting. Involved. So beyond the U.S.? Beyond the U.S., for sure. So um, local in Africa yes. is part of this mission. How are, you, how are you approaching that? Because that's a – I mean, there's the U.S. market and understanding how to serve the U.S. market digitally. Mm-hmm. And then there's the rest of the world. Where do you even start? Well, you start with, first of all, making it easy for people to find the online tools. So if they're looking for it, that's the kind of pull aspect of it. Um, so we have a presence on – three or four social networks that'll probably build over time we're not currently doing localized versions of any of that we're not currently doing localized versions of uh, language or anything like that Uh, but you could see that that might be a bridge we cross at some point in the meantime i think that we can work through partners we can work through um, different institutions that uh, have worked with the president in the past so there was an institution called the Young Leaders Network out of, run out of the State Department during the Obama years. And a lot of those young leaders in largely Africa, Southeast Asia, Latin America have of their own accord reached out or of their own initiative reached out to the foundation and want to get involved with what we're doing. So you could imagine, it's too early to say, local chapters popping up more or less formally uh, sure. or partner institutions around the world. Right, and and of course, because of your profile, people are going to reach out to you, which is always very that's that's right. powerful. Like, yeah. be, just sort of being a good listener sometimes is enough. Yeah. So let, let's talk a little bit about how you've ended up in this very specific role. Sure. Childhood. <laughs> Where'd you grow up? It has nothing to do with this job, I don't <laughs> think, but maybe it does. I grew up in Austin, Texas, by and large. Okay. School. Uh, college. College, University of Texas at Austin. Okay, you're still in Texas. Yep. Went and uh, became a lawyer. Went and became a lawyer. Law school. Law school at Harvard. Okay. That's not Texas. Not Texas. Okay. Clerkships while you're at Harvard? I did a uh, judicial clerkship after law school, yeah, in Miami. 
at the Miami. Uh, 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. Got it. What are the courts like in Miami? Well, there's state and federal courts. You're in federal court? Federal Appeals Court. Okay. For the Honorable Stanley Marcus, who's okay. one of the two 11th Circuit judges in Miami. Okay. So um, I'm watching district court is the, is the trial court in federal, and then appeals court is... One level up from that, one level below yep. Supreme Court. I'm watching Rich's brain turn around as if the as if the court is like filled with people in bikinis and there's well, like. Well, I a just <laughs> imagine you know the spinning ice machine yeah. that <laughs> kind of puts out some really nice margaritas and yeah. daiquiris and such, just being right there next to the transcribed. Everything's like white stucco. Everywhere. White stucco, yeah. a little neon on the edges. That's and only in, I think, only in Scarface is okay. like that. <laughs> that is the not the reality. The judges are in white. The judges are in white robes. <laughs> so, so now we have to get so. All right, let's keep going. Yeah, that's yeah. the thing. Like Harvard yeah. Law to CDO of Obama Foundation is. Well, is there's like, some still some stuff that's, in between. That's a, Paul. Okay, so what happens? How well, do, how do we get digital? That's what I'm trying to figure. Yeah, out. Yeah, the short version is that I went to law school uh, from '97 to 2000, and before getting there, didn't know much about the internet or technology, and it was actually there. That's prime time. '97. Yeah. It's about to. It's about to burst. Yeah. Um, but you weren't like at home hacking on your Commodore 64. I was as a grade schooler. Okay. Actually, literally hacking on a Commodore 64 <laughs> or an Apple. Um, but I think by the time I got to high school, I'd lost interest. Sure. And, and girls. Well, and, and you know, sports. Mm-hmm. I was more at music. I was more of a, I thought you had to pick bass guitar more of a humanities person at that point i don't know i'm not thinking bass guitar i'm thinking i don't know what maybe even like classical guitar like real oh sensitive God. look look you in the eyes while he plays Class- a the only guy playing classical guitar in texas glenn's like a bluff guy here oh uh, what do you call the sliding actually, guitar that, that so let's call it your... slide or right. lap steel all right what lap we, steel i didn't play lap steel that would be great <laughs> what, what what did you play i started off playing bass actually see Damn. Yeah. called it yeah. i was totally wrong called it all right, so the internet's happening. You're a lawyer. What's yep. happening? Okay, well, where well, are well, you? So are you in a law firm in 98? No, so I was in school. And, uh, I mean, the most important thing in my trajectory and what I owe most of my – the good parts of my career, too, is uh-huh. the, um, the Berkman Center, which now called the Berkman Klein Center mm-hmm. at Harvard. Um, then it was in, entirely housed in the law school. Now it's a university-wide center, and it's called the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society. And at the time, it was like a row of desks in a building at the law school. And it was considered among, I would say, the vast majority of the kind of law school community a kind of corridor for eccentric people to talk about futuristic things that probably don't really exist. Right, but that is also, I remember being an internet person, it was that for us too. Like, it was like, what is happening there? (laughs) Right. But it must have been really fun to look at. It was really fun. I mean, I was drawn to it, one, because... Unlike the most of the rest of what you're learning about in school, there were no rules. Right. And I, I very much liked the historical side of law school where you could find rules that were to 300 years old. But it was also really interesting and exciting to to look into the areas where there weren't any rules or there weren't any yet, and it was all wide open. It also, frankly, the people who were working there and in that area tended to be kind of eccentric and interesting no it was um, kooky bloggers yeah i mean it was they it was you'd, somebody you'd be like wow i don't know if i agree with a single word they'd say and then the next day they'd be like i'm going to the berkman center <laughs> right well they weren't even there weren't even bloggers yet yeah that, that term didn't exist at the time which is kind of crazy all right so you started hanging out with internet weirdos yeah that's cool yep 
Okay, so that is actually that's your that is your path at that point. If you start hanging out with that network, because the people who were there went on to various kinds of glory. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to, um, so basically, all of the kind of what they call cyber law and academia or information law. Most people who work in that area at some point passed through the Berkman Center. All right, so did you hook up with Lessig? Is that Lessig what happened? Lessig was, the, there was you go. the Berkman professor. Lawrence of law Lessig, there. yeah, yeah. Charles okay. Nesson was the founder of the Berkman Center okay. with uh, Jonathan Zittrain, mm-hmm. both of them are still at Harvard. Lessig's back at Harvard. Yeah. I mean, really, in some ways, these are these are pioneers of American cyber law. Like, there's yeah. no way around it. These guys framed a lot of it, and also, especially in terms of Lessig, really popularized the concept that that there a legal system would have to adapt to new technology. Yeah, and started a conversation that I don't think anyone had framed explicitly, which is that people who deal with the law and people who deal with code need to be able to translate to each other what the hell's going on on each side of the fence. Mm-hmm. Right. Now that sounds completely obvious, but at the moment, everybody just thought this was some weird new thing that, you know, it wasn't any more crazy than like TV or, or you know, the phone system. Like, eh, we'd figure it out. Right. It seems obvious, I think, to still probably, I would say it's still probably not a mainstream thing. Right. It's not like those cultures have merged. They have in a certain way. But I would say you take your av- your average technical person you know, in, in corporate Silicon Valley, take their understanding of how civics works, and it's probably there's some room for improvement there. Sure. And take sure. take your average take your average law firm lawyer's understanding of how code works or how an organization that builds code should work. There's probably a long long way to go there too. So you so. found yourself with some knowledge from both sides of the table, and then where'd you go? Well, so after law school, I clerked for for Judge Marcus in Miami. And then uh, some hand-waving in between with some short-term, short-term gigs here and there. Um, I went to help start Creative Commons, um, the nonprofit out of sure. Stanford um, in 2002 with Molly Van Howling, Molly Schaefer Van Howling, who's a, who's a professor at um, uh, Berkeley now. Oh, do we have to like, release Center this podcast alum. like CC 2.0 now? Yeah, Is that, okay. Do, All, right. <laughs> All right, we'll do it. Um, we will release and, this uh, podcast, Creative and, Commons. And obviously, Lessig and Hal Abelson and um, other kind of legends of. Oh, so there's a real Berkman Creative Commons link there. Yeah, some okay. of the early work and thought that came into Creative Commons that helped get it started happened at the Berkman Center and MIT. Both. And then Creative Commons to. Uh, well, I was at Creative Commons for three years, mm-hmm. so um, and was the executive director there, and from till two thousand five, and then went to Google, uh, in-house counsel at Google. Oh, um, make a little money. A, ro- a role called it's product. time. It's time. Product. Yeah, it's time. He did his part. Product he counsel. Did. did good. Creative Commons yeah. was great. Let's go to Google. Creative Commons actually created a framework for talking about rights, digital rights that didn't exist before, like. I remember when it came out, I felt a little eye-rolling. I was like, oh, really? All the other stuff in the world? And we have to take this seriously now, too? But then it actually gave away. You could have the conversation. You couldn't have it before. You, right. You look at the early 2000s and, and what was coming together, right? And you, you had this incredible sort of commercial pressure bearing down on the Internet, which this could have gone very differently. That's that's how I look at it mm-hmm. as I look back. like. It, it wanted to happen so badly. The commercial appropriation of just 
all of it in a lot of different ways. And we still defend it to this day. Well, There's it, still a spirit of defending a lot of but, it today. But it, and it did happen in various ways. It just never worked. Like, you know, Microsoft would come in and, and MSN would pop up. And yeah. there was always somebody ready to promise yeah. that they could control everything. And you have to appreciate the immune system that took hold. That sort of, for some reason, and it, it didn't take laws to, to protect it. It just would, it would just spit it up. And it was kind of fun to watch. You guys remember Pointcast? That was going to like replace the internet at one point. Push was going to replace. I mean, this bullshit. And then you had Microsoft went to war with Linux, which is like going to war with (laughs) weather, right? Like it's just like, uh, and now Linux is like built in. You can, you can get an Ubuntu shell inside of your Windows box. I mean, it's that moment. uh, There were all these very clear battle lines drawn and there was a sense of absolutism and creative commons. Creative commons sort of gave, it got rid of that absolutism. Yeah, I think just... that's right. I think that it was pre-Creative Commons, any conversation outside of you know academic legal circles or specialist lawyers about intellectual property or copyright tended to have a very binary. You stole my stuff to... versus yeah. it's all infinitely reproducible. Yeah. What are you talking about? Right. Yeah. right. Yeah. And so part of what we were trying to do was refine that conversation, make it clear that we're actually talking about the phrase we used at the time, a spectrum of rights. It was not an on-off switch uh, of rights when you're dealing with creative materials. You're dealing with an equalizer, um, not just a toggle. How big was Google when you were there? Uh, Let's see. So this is post-IPO. So it was, there were probably, I would join the legal department, there were probably 50 lawyers. So the company probably had 3,000 people. Right. So it's it's probably that many lawyers now. Yeah, exactly. I haven't kept track, but that's probably right. <laughs> okay. So I was there for five years total, six years total, most of which I spent at YouTube. So so sort of rights and licensing stuff? So I was a product counsel, which means that I was a lawyer to product managers and engineers. That's a job we have never described. We've described most of the jobs on this podcast. We've never described product counsel. That's interesting. That's good. Yeah. Okay. So, so You're in the eye of the storm. They could have put you on. Boy, at that moment, too. I that mean, was could, when all To be on time. YouTube versus... Google Keep as product counsel is uh, way more fun. So are you soon. so are you there at the moment when they decide that actually we're going to start kicking money back to the labels and it's all going to like we're going to find some sort of peaceable union here or well there was before the acquisition uh, of of YouTube by Google even before that the business and legal teams at YouTube had started creating deals with music companies um, among others to get them paid for user-generated content in exchange, letting that user-generated content live on on mm-hmm, the site. Mm-hmm. So um, it's really kind of genius, way ahead of its time deal work by uh, Zahaba Levine and Chris Maxey, who I ended up working for after the acquisition, both of them. Um, one a lawyer, one a business person, mm-hmm. backgrounds in the music industry. And they did deals with um, a couple of labels, I think all the labels, before, um, even before the acquisition, to make it free and clear, totally without any dispute, okay for users to be able to include commercial music in their vacation videos, right? their skateboarding dog You're video. not going to get a charge for $3,000 and no one's going to come to your door. Right. And it also laid in the framework for that to happen while passing royalties through to the labels and the songwriters was the via D- publishing companies. Was the DMCA kicked in yet? DMCA was in place since, since the late uh, 90s. Wait, oh, I didn't know that. Okay, yeah. I thought it was later. Okay. Yeah. Okay, you've taken a particular tack here, right, of how you're going to handle things, but isn't YouTube just sprinting way ahead of you in its growth anyway, and you're just watching it all flood? And, you you know, you, you can do only so many deals, but I, I remember there was a time when 
YouTube had just burst into flames and it was just too much. I don't or, remember that era. It all seemed to be, um, it was, it was a great, uh, so you were ahead experience. of all the, or you're being sarcastic. No, I'm not actually. Really? Uh, no, it was for a, for a copyright nerd, which is definitely what I was. I'm probably kind of burned out on it at this point. Um, a decade later, but at the time it was exactly what I wanted to be working on. Um, and also the aspect of trying to create a, a win, win, win for like users to make sure they had a good user experience and didn't feel like they had to live in a gray area for getting people like songwriters and labels paid and figuring out a model for that without, like Paul said, without it being like a binary, you're either a pirate, you know, yeah. or, uh, you know, capitalist, um, that there's a way for us to triangulate how this works. It was all exactly what the doctor ordered. Let me let me ask a meta question here, because this yeah. is something I think about a lot. You went from an ideologically pure zone, Creative Commons. No, ideologically, okay, let's come back to that, but go ahead. But a very We're like- We're trying to picture of Glenn soiling himself. Well, no, this is the thing, like-, like <laughs> Once he went to Google. You're at a not-for-profit defined around, you know, creating licensing terms for a global internet um, that is uh, where you're, you're, you're leading that and you're looking for compromises and you know, you, you're doing really good. And then you're going into a publicly traded company that is doing deals with enormous licensing organizations. Right. Um, did you feel heat going from one to the other? Did people go like, oh, he's with them now? Not out loud. I mm-hmm. think probably some people were curious about it, but I don't, it wasn't like it was front page news. I don't think anyone was paying attention. <laughs> How did you process it? Uh, uh, to me, it all felt very of a piece. Okay. It, it didn't feel too different. The role was very different. Mm-hmm. So at Creative Commons, I was a general manager. So mm-hmm. I, I did do some legal stuff, but I was mostly thinking about how is the staff growing? Do we, are we hiring the right people? Are we explaining our message in a way that people can actually understand it? Are we in every country in the world where we need to be? Are we fundraising the right way? Is the board happy? Are the people using the licenses on a day-to-day basis happy? Is the website working okay? How can I prevent our XYZ engineer from getting poached by a big company that pays them a lot more? For the people listening, like Glenn's eyes are looking very far away as he as he's going through this list. Like he's he's gone back about ten years. Yeah. Well, it was a, it was a great experience. So you're ready at that point. You can kind of manage anything. You can deal with a lot of complexity, and you've got your legal brain. So Google right. Google shows up. Google shows up, and a very different role as a, a legal job, whereas 100% legal job. But in this product council role, you know, you're encouraged to, um, and in fact, directed to, not only come up with legal solutions. Let's say 98% of the time, what could be a legal question, if you're thinking 10 years down the product roadmap, likely the solution is not a legal solution. You don't contract into a product that works better. Sure. You design uh, a product that works better. Right. And that is a, a really cool thing to collaborate with a product manager on right. um, or an engineer on. You know, obviously, I mentioned before, like, the sort of public service that Lessig and company started with encouraging this kind of conversation that translates between technical people and lawyers. That happened on a daily, daily mm-hmm. basis, and you don't always translate to each other in a way that's understandable. So it's not like it was smooth sailing all the time, but that was part of the process. And then after Google, what happens? Uh, so, after, so after Google, went to YouTube, ended up working full-time at YouTube, switched out of a uh, legal role into a business role, 
mm-hmm. um, though it had a ton of law in it because it was uh, uh, music partnerships at YouTube. So Content ID at that point was built or getting built. The lawsuits were... Content ID is the... It can tell you tell you what song is playing? Right. Content okay. ID is where... Uh, uh, unbelievable technology that I still don't fully understand where separate from hashing or literal copies segments of music or segments of video could get recognized by reference files mm-hmm. as they're getting uploaded and transcoded mm-hmm. and you're talking about That's you know crazy. days of video mm-hmm. an hour happening mm-hmm. coming through the system and getting compared against a reference database that has reference files in it preloaded there that have business rules attached to them you know uh, block track or monetize so pretty miraculous stuff. So when that started coming out from Google Engineering and YouTube Engineering and on the legal side, we'd won summary judgment early on in the Viacom and class action lawsuit there. Mm-hmm. With those two things in place, I thought it was a good time to switch over into trying my hand at business negotiating type stuff. And okay. it was still very rooted in law because music is law. And that's not like a little known thing. It's very Music romantic, is, Glenn. Yeah. It is. Music is law. It is. Unfortunately, the innards of it are. Yeah. I, right. I don't. Yeah. I, I don't. Um, I don't encourage anyone to go into that if you're a music fan. <laughs> or a musician. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just, just play bass. <laughs> just exactly. Right. More fun. Uh, okay. So then and then Twitter after that, right? Uh, then, yeah. Then Twitter. So um, burned out on music for the reasons I just explained. Mm-hmm. Burned out on music law, that is. Still like music. Um, and wanted to return to just liking music for itself. But was I definitely had the video bug, and I had the real-time bug because of some live streaming stuff that YouTube did with Twitter back when Google and Twitter played friendly together. Mm-hmm. So we, did, we live-streamed some concerts, and back then it was fairly standard to have like a box of tweets below the video stream. I don't know if you remember. So we did a, a, a live-stream series with... Vivo, that the, the big music video sure. website. And I remember seeing, we live-streamed an Arcade Fire show at Madison Square Garden, and I remember backstage watching the, the stream and seeing the tweets coming through, and what blew me away was that probably 75% of them were in Spanish or Portuguese. That's so cool. they were, Arcade Fire hadn't yet toured Latin America, but they had a ton of fans down there. And so it was a really cool, vivid way to see the power of what real-time could do. Mm-hmm. So I got the bug of like, okay, live video, real-time stuff. I know, you know, I have some colleagues, former colleagues, former classmates at Twitter, and uh, went in there with the idea of trying to figure out what Twitter video could look like. Mm-hmm. Less on the UGC side and more on the premium video side. And that's when I got back into sports again, which I hadn't been into in a long time. Because mm-hmm. with the small team we had there we thought what would be the coolest twitter most twittery experience possible well it would be we know people have their phones open when stuff's happening on tv that was the all the great work done by the early twitter folks so discovering that so wait what are you you're not a lawyer you're I'm, not a there's a business unit owner oh okay so yeah. you are a you are now a tech manager mm-hmm. at a high level um sure yeah, I mean, no, it, was I mean a, it was sort of a skunk works group when it started. So what, what became Twitter Amplify, which was, you know, sports highlights and second screen video. No, what I'm hearing is that you went from lawyer to product, really. Like, yeah, like, it, was, it wasn't formally called product, but yeah, that it kind of... A little more business skewed, it sounds sure. like. Versus like, let's review the UI. Yeah, although it it's, all started with part of it. the user exp- We wanted to have, and I say we, because... At the time, it was three people. It was a guy named Jay Carr, who I'd worked with at YouTube, and a guy named Mike Park, 
who I had done a deal with at YouTube mm -hmm. at a different company and who had been a product manager before. And all we wanted to do was fulfill a use case, which was if someone dunks on TV in an NBA game or a college game, um, or I'm in the stadium and I see him dunk, I want to see it again on my phone so I can share it. Yeah, and at right. the time, that actually didn't exist. But if I get that, I know I can make money. Well, then the whole the, then the second wave that comes from that is, well, that's clearly a sponsorable event. And again, you get this kind of opportunity to let the user win, let the rights holder win, and pay for it. So, you know, we're in a commercial environment. And so um, that's when we started doing deals with ESPN was the first, then the NBA, NCAA. Eventually had hundreds of partners. The biggest deals we did were with the NFL, which were rights that didn't exist in the mobile environment outside of the official Verizon app until we did the first Twitter deals with them. See, this is all starting to line up now because we've got a lawyer who understands product, who understands audience, who understands sort of real time. Uh, that becomes someone who's going to be really attractive to a large politically inflected or formerly politically inflected NGO, right? Because you can do, you, you need the legal. You actually, like, it's very useful to be able to think law first um, it's a in this It's world. like a synthesis of a lot of different yeah. angles. Like all these factors just almost blend together as you make decisions, I'm guessing. Uh, sure. I mean, I don't know. I don't have to make any kind of legal judgments. I mean, we have an amazing legal department for that. I, I, I must probably be processing things in some sort of legal way in the back of my mind, even though that's not um, I can the first thing I'm thinking of. I can tell you. I mean, now we can talk a little bit about it. We did some work together. Uh, early days, before, uh, before the administration was over, we were gathering some information before everything ended in right. order to use as a, uh, a framework. This is post-light working for the Obama Foundation, and you were becoming CDO at that point. And uh, we would be, on we'd be in a lot of conversations because when you're working with political data, you have to really follow the rules. You can't just like, be like, oh, I'll download the video. You got to look at the API guidelines, and you have to make sure you're in compliance. And in talking to you and talking to other lawyers as we were doing this work for you, my goodness, there is a lot of law. And it was, <laughs> I am not a lawyer. Rich was, but I am not. And I have read a lot of contracts and, and am roughly informed. This was a lot of legal stuff. And that was just to kind of get out of the gate. So I think it's, it's got to be, it's gotta be a, a, a pretty big part of the grounding in, in the sort of specific kind of chief digital officer you are. Well, thanks. I mean, yeah. I think it helps. But I, I think that uh, it's interesting how in it's a very different context, totally different environment, radically different stakes. But there are some similarities between like early Creative Commons and what we're doing in that it's not a political uh, organization. Sure. Um, it is a both symbolically important and practically important organization. And I think that you mentioned before, like, you describe Creative Commons as, as an ideologically pure space. I never really thought of it as an ideological organization. There were lots of different opinions on that. Mm -hmm. I would say even within the board and the staff, were we an ide ideological organization or a pragmatic organization? I probably leaned way harder, me personally, on the pragmatic side. Like I mean, I, I, the licenses are descriptive more than prescriptive. Well, the, the thing is, though, they, they, that's right. There is still a – no, you don't have to choose between whether it's a symbolically important organization and a kind of cultural identity for a lot of people and the fact that it's also really useful to a lot of people who trade open courseware or trade royalty-free images. So it's, it's kind of both. And I, I mentioned at the top of, the, uh, of this podcast that 
the Obama Foundation's mission is to inspire and empower right. people um, and organizations and communities to change their world. And I think that twin aspect of both the rhetorical, emotional, symbolic inspiration and the purely utilitarian tool providing, training providing, network providing, pragmatic side of things is core to what the Obama Foundation's doing. Good. So look, you've got a big job. What do people do to help you? What do you need? Who should, who should get in touch? I mean, we want to make it possible for anybody to pitch in uh, at whatever level they want to. So a lot of organizations say they're open to feedback. We really are. Just go on the website, Obama.org, or look at our social channels, and we're constantly asking people to give us advice on what they want to see us working on. Mm-hmm. That could be purely technical, or it could be more on the programming side, like what kind of training do you want to see? How should the Obama Foundation work on things like the terrible storm in Houston? I mean, do you need people to come work for you? Do you need people to pitch you ideas? What, what would be sure. good right now? So people can come pitch us ideas. People can come to the website. People can go to our social channels. We actually check that stuff. We go through it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we scour it. We pull up great examples that people give us. We might republish them on the website. That's one kind of tier of participation. Um, we have internship programs in Chicago and Washington, D.C., um, I would love to start one in New York. I'd love to have some interns in California as well. Um, that internship program is fairly new and informal at the moment. It'll get more formal and grow over time. Um, we are looking for creative people and designers, editorial type people, but also technical people, back end coder, front end coder, uh, multi purpose engineers. So if someone um, had done well in like a, in a media organization on like the product and technology side, they might be a good fit in your world. A great fit. So I think the two mental models for our team would be, I'm oversimplifying, but um, an in-house creative agency mm-hmm. uh, that has the both creative and the technical chops to do projects to promote the message of the, of the overall org uh, and a small media company. So, okay. we are so we don't think of ourselves as like, oh, we are the next Disney or something like that. But we do want to uh, have a we do, and we do have a voice of our own, which means that anybody with production experience in video uh, or web uh, or design would be great. Well, we haven't talked too much about it, but one of the things that that we did uh, when we worked together was we built this giant database of all the all the data we could get that was available and open in public domain in order to make it searchable to make new kinds of media, right? So that was the work post I did for the foundation and. So there's a really there's good tools there. Like you can get in and hit the ground running, and you have eight years of the most important years in America, the most recent eight years, to play with and and to work with and to sort of explore in order to to make new things happen. And right. so, I liked that idea. Like not not only did we do the work, and that was good for us as a business, but thinking meta that way and being like, hey, what are we going to need in order to create really great media? Well, you know what? It'd be great if we had the whole last eight years at our fingertips. Those are great tools that media organizations almost never built for themselves. And so uh, it was really, it was fun for us to do something right. And uh, so I I think it'll be a a hell of an organization. Yeah. As uh, I mean, there's just a lot to amplify. So very good to have you on. Thanks for having me. And come back and tell us more as things are growing. And and, Will do, for sure. Uh, so Glenn shared a lot of different ways uh, you can get involved, and a great starting point is Obama.org. Thanks again, Glenn. Thank this you. Was great. 
All right, Rich. I don't even know what to add to that. There is a lot going on. Well, you know, he went from like doing stuff that's interesting for the world, and then he went and made money, and then he came back out to do interesting stuff. To yeah, he's he's just a multi-dimensional human being, which I'm not, which makes me think about myself a lot. Whoa, <laughs> this got dark fast. Yeah, let's not even go there. Right. Um, anyway, look, the Obama Foundation is one hell of an organization. So give it them was great to work with them, actually. Yeah, they were. They were probably one of my all-time favorite. All the clients are wonderful. Everybody all, is every equally client loved is clients. But some clients, you just <laughs> they're just special. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I think it might have had something to do with the fact that um, a lot of our work for them was, was uh, in the contact. Anyway, regardless of uh, what's going on in politics today. It was wonderful to work for the Obama uh, Foundation. Yes, this, this podcast showed great discipline. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no one railed. Uh, if you need us, hello at postlight.com. Give us five stars on iTunes. We love you. We'll see you soon. Talk or, to you soon. Let's get back to work. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.